On this Selected Shorts, we take flight with novelist Amy Tan, who shares stories about birds, real and fantastical, a fable about friendship, a spooky tale of teens in transition, and a bird song that goes viral. I'm your host, Meg Wallitzer. Don't fly away. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Birds. They're all around us, in the sky, on the ground, in our gardens, our parks. Majestic, like eagles. Diminutive, like wrens. Comical, like boobies. And they are everywhere in our literature, too, in fables and poems and novels and plays. So we at Shorts thought it might be a good idea to invite some to fly in for an evening. And we knew it was a good idea when we found out that our old friend, the novelist Amy Tan, is an avian enthusiast. Tan's published works include the novels The Joy Luck Club and The Valley of Amazement. Her most recent work is the memoir Where the Past Begins. I've been a reader of Amy Tan's work since The Joy Luck Club broke my heart and everyone else's over three decades ago. I was so moved by what she expressed about mothers and daughters. But more generally, her work often explores secret and unspoken histories. And though the characters in her novels may generally be more earthbound than the birds on this show, still the work soars. Tan joined us for a live evening of stories as colorful and varied as birds themselves. And here she is, speaking from the stage at Symphony Space, where she shared beautiful bird drawings, which can be seen at our website, SelectedShorts.org. Good evening. I'm your host, Amy Tan. You may know me as the author of children's books, short stories, novels, memoirs, but maybe you don't know this fact. I am besotted about birds. I do believe that writers and readers have a natural affinity to birds. Birds, after all, have a lot of allegorical and metaphoric meanings. Birds have been seen in stories from time immemorial as transformational beings in which we become the birds or they become us. In 2016, I needed hope after experiencing the rise in open racism, especially that directed to Asians. I sat for hours before my window in the dining room, and I drew these birds' daily dramas, the inter- and intraspecies behavior, territorial disputes, courtship, mating, nesting and nestlings, fledglings and juveniles, the birds that arrive and depart with migration. Doing continual observation of birds through the seasons and over the years, I was relying on my skills as a writer, seeing characteristics, patterns, contradictions, motivation, and being attuned to the fine differences between the unexpected and the inevitable. I learned the danger of assigning intention to a bird. And although I do think birds have emotions, ours are not theirs. My attention to details as a new artist also strengthened my observations as a writer. I drew only those birds that looked at me. We had a relationship. I had to do the flip side of anthropomorphism, and that was to imagine I was the bird. I had to predict what the bird would do next based on what I already knew about the bird. That's also what writers do with characters in a narrative. I realize that everything a bird does is meaningful. Every feather has purpose. Every day is a chance to survive. Every bird will surprise you and do what you don't expect. That was our guest host, Amy Tan. Our first work is The Frog and the Bird by Ben Lurie. Lori is the author of the collections Tales of Falling and Flying and Stories for Nighttime and Some for the Day. Put any two non-human creatures in a story and you've usually got a fable. Here, Lori gives us a fresh take on the usual formula in which some homily about human nature is offered up. Instead, there's the possibility of change. Reading The Frog and the Bird is Mike Doyle, known for his work on television series including Law and Order SVU and City on a Hill. Here he is with the frog and the bird. The frog and the bird. A frog was hopping along one day. 
He was a young frog, and he hadn't seen much, and he wasn't really looking where he was going, and abruptly he fell in a hole. The hole was deep, very, very deep, especially for such a small frog. He tried hopping out, but he had to give up. He knew he could never hop that high. He looked around the hole, but there was no other exit. There was just no way out. Help me, cried the frog at the top of his lungs, but only the wind blew by. Help me, cried the frog, please, someone, please, but no one answered his call. And it was only when the frog finally started to cry that a shadow fell across the hole. And as soon as the shadow fell, the frog got a bad feeling. He stopped and wiped his eyes and looked up. The shadow resolved into the shape of a bird, a bird with a long, sharp bill. Uh-oh, said the frog. As the bill came jabbing down, it came rattling and stabbing into the hole. It was snapping and biting, trying to get the frog. Stop, cried the frog. Stop, leave me alone. But the bird didn't stop. Its bill just kept coming. The frog hopped about, trying to stay out of range. He kept bumping and smashing against the walls of the hole. I'm too young to die, he kept saying. But the bird didn't care. The bird just ignored him. It was way too intent on its work. It kept jabbing and stabbing. It was so hungry, so hungry. It just wanted to eat the frog up. But after a while, the frog finally realized that the hole was just a little too deep. No matter how far down the bird jabbed its beak into the hole, it couldn't reach, especially if the frog cowered in the corner and lay flat against the bottom, which he did. And finally, the bird realized it was hopeless too. Stand up so I can eat you, it said. <laughs> no, said the frog, I'm not gonna do that. Oh, come on, why not, said the bird. You're just gonna die in this hole anyway, and I'm hungry. I hope you starve, said the frog. That made the bird mad. It jabbed its beak down again, and it snapped and snicked and snapped at the frog's head. All right, I'm sorry, stop, said the frog. I'm gonna crunch your bones, the bird said. But that's all I am, said the frog. I'm just bones. You don't want me. I'm still underdeveloped. Go and find yourself an all grown up frog. They'll taste much better, I promise. The bird stopped jabbing. It peered into the hole. Step into the light, it said. The frog thought about it. Then slowly he moved forward, though he made sure he was still out of reach. The bird peered down at the frog for a bit. It's true. You're pretty skinny, it said. Yeah, said the frog. He sucked in his gut. I'm pretty much nothing, he said. The bird thought a moment. It made a look of distaste. All right, forget it, it said. And it turned from the hole and started to walk away. Wait, wait, come back, the frog said. The bird came back. It peered into the hole. Well, what now, it said. Y you can't just leave me down here, said the frog. Oh yeah, why not, said the bird. It's not right, said the frog. I'll die if you leave me here. So what do I care, said the bird. You didn't care if I starved to death. Eh, it's not the same thing, said the frog. Isn't it, said the bird. I don't see how it's different. Now if you'll excuse me, I have a life to go live. Wait, said the frog. What, said the bird. Maybe we could make a deal, the frog said. A deal, said the bird. Like what kind of deal? How about this, said the frog. You help me out of this hole, and then you let me live, and you can eat me when I'm all grown up. <laughs> that way, he said, at least I can live a bit, see what life is all about. Life is about eating, said the bird, and that's all. I can tell you that right now. Maybe, said the frog. I really wouldn't know. But how's about it? Do we have a deal? How long does it take you to get grown up, said the bird. Oh, said the frog, hmm, about a year. The bird thought about it. One year, it said. One year, said the frog, that's all. And you'll get really big and juicy, said the bird. My parents were huge, said the frog. <laughs> all right, said the bird, and stuck its beak down into the hole, and the frog reached up and grabbed hold. 
And the bird raised him up and out of the hole and set him gently on the ground. Thank you, said the frog, brushing himself off. A year is a year, said the bird. I know, said the frog. I'll see you then. And he turned and started to hop off. Hey, said the bird, where do you think you're going? What do you mean, said the frog. I'm not stupid, said the bird. You can't just run away. I'm not letting you out of my sight. Well, said the frog, if that's what you want. That's what I want, said the bird. The two of them looked at each other for a bit. So what's your name, said the frog. My name, said the bird, what does that matter? If we're going to travel together, said the frog, I should probably know. I mean, what if there's an avalanche and I have to tell you to move? <laughs> Seems unlikely, said the bird, but it's Elisander. Elisander, said the frog. Wow. <laughs> Shut up, said the bird. <laughs> and you, what's yours? Oh, it's just Henry, said the frog. Well then, Henry, said the bird, what's the plan? Where do you want to go first? I don't know, said the frog. What place is good? Well, there's the lake, said the bird. So the frog and the bird went down to the lake. They stood for a while on the shore. The bird reached in and pulled out a fish. I like those too, said the frog. So the frog went in and gobbled up a fish. He climbed back onto the bank and burped. After that, the two of them wandered about. Where are you from, said the bird. Texas, said the frog. What about you? They called it Minnesota, said the bird. Uh, I haven't been there, said the frog. Is it nice? I don't know. Nice enough, said the bird. They talked a bit more about this and about that, and later, when it got dark, they settled down. They spent the night inside an old tree. In the morning, they got up and moved on. The two traveled together all over the place. They traveled mostly north through the spring. They spent the summer and fall in the mountains, and in the winter, they went south again. The frog saw and learned about all kinds of things. He got pretty good at singing songs. Sing the one about the bird again, the bird said. You know how much I like that one. And meanwhile, of course, the frog was getting older, older and bigger, too. He was getting visibly fatter every day. They didn't talk about it, but they knew. And finally, one day early in the spring, the frog stopped hopping and cleared his throat. <clears> throat> hey, uh, listen, he said, Elisander, there's something we gotta talk about. Yeah, said the bird, and what would that be? Well, uh, it's been a year, the frog said. You kept up your end and now I'll keep up mine. And thanks for being such a friend. Friend, said the bird, looking at the frog askance and eyeing his plump, juicy rolls. <laughs> You're gonna be so delicious, it said. I've been waiting for this for so long. And the frog closed his eyes and the bird opened its beak and it reached out and gobbled the frog up. Then it spat them back out. And the two of them laughed, and they went and ate ants from a hollow log. <laughs> Mike Doyle performed The Frog and the Bird by Ben Laurie. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Here he is backstage after his performance. It's this beautiful fable about friendship and surprises and learning from our differences. There's humor in the story, which is always a fun aspect of a story when you're reading it. It's very dialogue forward as well, so it's fun to act out the different parts. See, wasn't that nice? Usually in a fable, one creature eats the other and we get some horrible moral about how it's just their natures. But in Lori's tale, these two develop a relationship not to mention a taste for friendship, which turns out to be even more appetizing than the taste of frog. Here's Amy Tan. This fable has many interpretive layers. I see it as a story about power and desire and doom and promises. I like to imagine the bird with this great, long, powerful bill as being a great heron, which stands about this high and is capable of swallowing a gopher or even a small alligator. That was our guest host, Amy Tan. Our second feathered work is Town of Birds by Heather Monley. 
Monley has published in McSweeney's Internet Tendency and the Kenyan Review, where this story first appeared. This eerie tale inevitably brings Alfred Hitchcock's 1963 horror classic The Birds to mind. But Monley is leading us into both gentler and darker territory. Here's Amy Tan introducing the story from the stage at Symphony Space. Now the next story we will hear is about transformation and survival, but with a twist. Town of Birds by Heather Monley is told in an allegorical style and is deceptively simple yet full of irony and complicated truths about innocence and its transformation into something quite frightening. That was our guest host, Amy Tan. Town of Birds will be read by Yatide Bodaki, an actress, writer, and producer known for the series This Is Us and American Gods. Town of Birds. In the town where the children turned into birds, we were not as surprised as you might imagine. Children have always been changing into things, becoming things you wouldn't expect. There was the time the boys grew their hair long so they looked like girls, and the time the girls wore the heavy pants of boys. When the children grew feathers and took to the trees, We believed it was more of the same. Of course, when the children did not fly home in time for dinner, and then when the children did not fly home at all, the mothers cried. But mothers have always cried at the things that children do. The children did not change all at once. First were the troublemakers, those smoking behind dumpsters and breaking bottles on empty lots when large blackbirds appeared at these children's houses, waiting at windows and biting at doors, we began to suspect what had happened. The people in town shook their heads. Kids like that always find a way to shock. Then more children changed. The good children, the promising. An entire seventh grade class disappeared. My mother brushed my brother's hairs back from his forehead and studied his eyes. He was not much younger than those who had turned. The birds were not beautiful. They were large, dark, and dusky, with long, snaking necks. A breed of cormorant, we learned, was their species. I was a child, but younger than those who were changing. The older kids had frightened me, their roughness and shouts, and I didn't like them as birds, either. When my mother and I walked down by the lake where the birds had begun to congregate, I eyed the creatures with wide, cool eyes. The birds hunkered dark in the trees and squabbled. When a child changed into a bird, he retreated from the world. He went to the bathroom or stepped around a corner, and that was the last you saw of him. There never were signs. The change came sudden or appeared that way. Perhaps for weeks, a shift had been occurring deep within the child's body. Or perhaps the seed had always been there, spreading outward since birth. A call came from school. My brother had missed his afternoon classes, and that is how we learned he had changed. That evening, we heard a scraping at the kitchen window, and my mother turned from the stove, her face pink with steam. She opened the window. My brother clambered in, falling to the linoleum, wings pointing out like gangly elbows. He flapped to his usual seat at the table, but when my mother spooned food on his plate, he prodded it with his bill and wouldn't eat. He hopped onto the table and stood in the salad, then lifted up and careened around the house until we opened the door, and he flapped out into the night. He had spoiled our food and broken a candlestick. His guano had stained a seat cushion. He didn't enter the house again. My mother scavenged food for him, fish, crustaceans, certain insects, and brought these to the windowsill where my brother swallowed them whole, still living. My mother reached her fingers towards his wings, but my brother skittered away. Soon he wouldn't come to the window, but waited for his supper on the front lawn, jutting his head forward and back. My mother stood in the yard and threw fish, still alive and flipping. All over town, 
Mothers threw fish to beckon the children. My brother stopped coming to the house at all. He was lost to the trees and lake. We walked down to the water where the birds grunted and dove and tried to pick out my brother from the others. That one, my mother said, pointing to a bird on a rock, wings stretched out to dry the feathers. She straightened her jaw. It has to be that one, I think. As the months passed, the bird's feathers changed from the dull, dusky tone of youths to a mature and inky black. In the summer, they gathered sticks and lake grass and flotsam and built nests high in the trees. We watched the nests through binoculars. Soon, above the twigs, small feeble things poked their heads. The grandchildren of the town. The children kept changing. As the young in our town reached a certain age, they flapped off to the lake. As the years passed, it became a matter of course. And when a boy's chin grew a few strands of hair, or a girl came to laugh in a certain way, the old people said, it can't be long now. A few children remained human, and we'd see them, these teenagers walking to their empty classes, silent and pale. We younger children, we didn't wish to become ones like these. We prepared for an avian life. We ran wild. Why teach them manners, our mother said. They'll be birds soon enough. We ran through the streets and down to the lake, watching the birds dive and emerge with fish. We sat at the lake shore and threw rocks into the water, perhaps in the birds' direction, but we would not throw rocks at the birds themselves. We were too afraid. Soon I'd reached the proper age, and my companions started changing. Once, we caught a boy sneaking from class and pursued him onto the playing field. He stopped, his back to us, and wrapped his arms around himself. He seemed to be wearing a dark cape, but as we approached, the cape became feathers, and he spread them out into wings. He lifted from the ground and flew to the trees that boarded the school, and there, we could not catch him. One by one, they disappeared. I skipped school, went hiding, climbed trees, waiting for something to overcome me. When children younger than I started changing, I knew I'd been left behind. A town so blighted cannot last long. Our children had not grown into adults, and no one was left to run the businesses. Main Street windows boarded up. Families gathered their things and moved away. The others, like me, who had not changed, they left as soon as they could. But my mother and I stay on. We seem unable to leave. She watches the cormorants fly low over the yard, their necks outstretched, wings swimming through air. She speaks of my brother, always the best of sons, she says. He wanted to be a doctor. Often I walk down to the lake and sit at the shore, where our silent town is still cacophonous. The birds' numbers grow. The trees around the lake stink with their feces, and the guano has killed off the underbrush. I watch the birds on the rocks, in the trees, in the water. I strip off my clothes and stand before them. Their eyes are like jewels. I dive into the lake and Imagine the water pulls back my skin, revealing something new and black underneath. I want the birds to take me away. So many places come to their end. Our town is no different from any of them. Yatide Badaki performed Town of Birds by Heather Monley. I'm Meg Wallitzer. We spoke with Badaki backstage at Symphony Space. It was interesting because from the first read, you were drawn in with the lyrical nature of it all, but there was also this haunting sadness. So yeah, I had feelings of loss and of being left behind a little bit. It became about what I was immediately drawn to, the thing that immediately resonated was love 
for the brother, for the space, for those others that moved on. But it definitely made me look at birds with a slightly different lens, imagining then the different stories of, but what were you before? Where were you before? What are the secret lives of birds, so to speak? Yes, it definitely deepened my love for birds. And it brings me back to my original reason for doing what I do. It brings me back to the original space, which was being a young girl in Nigeria, listening to my elders tell stories by the fire. And this moment for me is a full circle moment in that way. Well, this story is just so powerful, because while we know change is a part of life and is maybe inextricable from it, sometimes we get all messed up when we see it happen. As a mother and recently a grandmother, which is very weird to me because, hey, I thought I was young and precocious, and now I'm basically the fourth roommate on the Golden Girls, this story is just gutting. Of course we all cry at the song Sunrise, Sunset. Those lines, is this the little girl I carried? Is this the little boy at play? They totally make you cry. But you don't expect the next line to be, but now they've both turned into cormorants. The thing is, teenagers can feel spectacularly spiky and non-human. Not the soft little people we used to snuggle. Yet that change, which no one really wants to think about in the beginning, is part of the bargain. When we return, an unattainable bird song. I'm Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. This show is for the birds, or at least about the birds. If you're only just landing, don't worry. You can find the first half of the show and many others on our website, selectedshorts.org. Just press subscribe to podcasts, and you'll see links for Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. And please, if you like the show, be sure to, you should forgive the expression, tweet it. We started this bird-themed program with a fable, and we end it with a parable, The Mating Call by Mikkel Rosengard, who's published in Book Forum, Bomb Magazine, and McSweeney's Quarterly, among others, and whose first novel is The Invention of Anna. Rosengard lives in New York City now, but he was born in Hamlet's hometown, Elsinore, which probably lets him in for a lot of bad Shakespeare jokes. This gently comic tale of an attempt to perpetuate a rare bird song on a remote and idyllic South Seas island touches on many themes. It explores wealth and patronage, art and imitation, truth versus myth, authenticity and commercialism. Here's Amy Tan. It concerns both the artistic and ethical parameters of living in a virtual world, one that would have been accurate in every detail had reality not been slightly augmented to suit desire. But aren't desires real? What then is reality? The mating call's many layers are brilliantly uncovered by our old friend and frequent reader, B.D. Wong. Wong's credits include his Tony Award-winning performance in M. Butterfly, the television series Oz and Law & Order SVU, and the Jurassic Park films. Here he is to beguile us with Mikkel Rosengard's The Mating Call. The Mating Call. On the internet, as you probably know, there was a copy of a South Seas Island where everything was rendered in natural size and so lifelike that it looked like the genuine thing. The real island is one of the prettiest in the world, a landscape of swaying palm trees, white sand beaches, teeming coral reefs under an azure sea, and so far away and so difficult to reach that only the very rich can get there. That is precisely why the art collector commissioned the copy. 
He wanted everyone to see it, even the poor who never had a chance to travel. On the art collector's island, you could see all the wonders of the South Seas. Waves always lapped gently against the beach. The sky was ever blue. Yes, the island was so artfully rendered and stretched so far that not even the animator had been to all the corners. In the jungle, you could see the strangest orchids. Monkeys howled from the canopy. And if you kept on walking, a path led up through the hills to a caldera lake. And among the branches lived an uh-oh bird who sang so wistful a mating call that even a young gamer playing a tournament late at night stopped his game and listened when he heard the uh-oh calling from the open tab. Holy shit, what a beautiful song, he said. Visitors came from all around the internet to admire the island's beaches and jungles and the caldera lake. And if they happened to hear the mating call, they breathed beautiful. The visitors told their followers about the extraordinary island. They posted screenshots of the beaches and the jungles, but nothing was shared more than the uh-oh's mating call. Those who knew how to edit videos uploaded Gorgeous shots of the island, all featuring the uh-oh song. Those videos spread across the world, and some of them eventually reached the art collector. He sat in his art foundation study, scrolling and scrolling as he nodded approvingly because he believed in truth and nature, and nothing pleased him more than to share the true beauty of the South Seas. Wow, that mating call, said the top comment. That's the prettiest thing I ever heard. What is this all about, said the art collector. A mating call? And supposedly the best thing on my entire island? And then he opened a window to the island and walked from the beach up the hills to the caldera lake. And when he reached the shore, he noticed a melancholy little warble. Sure enough, it was the uh-oh singing its mating call so longingly that the art collector drew a deep breath. Tears crept into his eyes, and then the uh-oh song sounded even sadder and more wistful. The art collector sighed and thought about all the poor people who lived among such ugly things would never have heard so beautiful a song if it hadn't been for his generosity. <laughs> I've never heard anything so beautiful, said the art collector. And to think, this is just a copy. <laughs> the whole internet loves the online bird, but I would like to hear the genuine thing. The art collector chartered a flight and flew the long way to the island in the South Seas. And because he was such a generous man, he invited his colleagues and family to come along. The first day, they saw the beaches and the coral reefs. Ah, said the museum director, I know this place. It feels exactly like I've been here before. The second day, they saw the jungle. Gorgeous, said the critic. I'm seeing it for the first time, but it's like a deja vu. The third day, they visited the Caldera Lake. Down here, cried the art collector's granddaughter when they reached the ridge. Look, look, now we'll hear the birdie. And off she ran down the path toward the shore where ancient trees were mirrored in the lake. No luck today, I guess, said the museum director when they had circled the lake without hearing the mating call. Dear little uh-oh, whispered the granddaughter, come along. Come along, we wish only to hear your pretty song. But there was no mating call to be heard, only the wind whistling in the trees. That evening, the art collector held a dinner, and the dining hall was decorated with torches and the loveliest flowers. The museum director gave a speech and declared the online island a groundbreaking work of internet art. The critic lauded the island for how closely the real jungle resembled the forests online. Oh yes, the island was certainly a success. The art collector beamed with pride. 
I don't think I've ever been as happy as on this gorgeous island, he said. All that was missing was the uh-oh song. But when the art collector asked the hotel staff what time of day they could hear the mating call, they had no clue what he was talking about. They had lived in this town all their life. They knew only the ashen birds that lived among the houses and were not familiar with the jungle birds. How sad, said the art collector. All this nature in their backyard and they don't even know the O's mating call. Well, that's the problem with kids today. They always have their eyes glued to a screen. He sent his personal assistant to get advice on how they could hear the O's song. But where was the mating call to be found? The PA ran up and down the streets, in and out of travel agencies. Not a single person she met knew where they could hear the uh-oh song. The PA ran back to the art collector and said that the mating call must be a feature fabricated by the animator. Well, that's how it goes with game designers. You should not believe everything they animate. It's all invention and what's called Easter eggs. Easter eggs, said the art collector. No, my island is an exact copy of the real island. If there is no uh-oh in real life, there should not be one online. And then the art collector called the animator, who was so busy with his rigging and modeling that he did not hear the phone ring. But the animator has won prizes and grants for his accurate depictions, said the art collector. So it has to be real. No, I want to hear that mating call. And it better be soon, because in three days we are flying home. Of course, said the PA. And once again, she searched the island for the strange bird that the whole internet knew about, but no one had laid eyes on. She walked up and down the island street. She drove down potholed roads and clambered up muddy paths. Finally, deep in the jungle, the PA met a poor old woman. The woman said, ah, yes, the, uh-oh. Of course, I know him very well. The old woman told the story of the uh-oh. When the white people arrived, they brought mosquitoes to the island. With the mosquitoes, diseases arrived. Every year, birds died. And in the end, only a single uh-oh was left. He lived up by the lake in a tree hollow before he died, said the old lady. And when I walked home in the evening, I would hear him calling for his mate. I had to sit and whistle a reply because the song of the uh-oh is a duet and no mate would ever answer his call. Back at the hotel, the art collector nodded slowly as he listened to the story. Tears gathered in his eyes for he knew what it was like to call out for the one you love and never receive a reply. Was anyone ever as lonesome as that poor uh-oh, said the art collector over dinner. And the museum director and the critics shook their heads as sadly as they could. The next morning, the art collector woke up with a new idea. I will resurrect the mating call, he said, because he had always believed in conserving nature and in love as well. Back in his study at the Art Foundation, he posted an open call and promised that any artist who could figure out how to recreate the mating call on the island in the South Seas would receive a prize. In the studios across the world, sculptors and animators and video artists considered how to solve the problem. Solar-powered speakers, robotic birds, the whole art world gossiped about the strange assignment. Even the critical theorists and radical decolonialists were excited, and that is saying a lot because they were rarely pleased. <laughs> One day, after many months, a courier delivered a package to the art collector. The label said mating call. So another robo bird, said the art collector when he saw the bird cage inside the package, but it was not a robot. A real living being, 
sat on the perch, a little bird with yellow feathers and a beating heart. The instructions told him to whistle to the bird, and as soon as he did, the bird began to warble. The art collector closed his eyes, and its song filled the room. The notes rose and fell, as wistful as the song he had heard so often by the online lake. Yes, it really was the mating call. A golden plate was attached to the birdcage. On it were the words, the yellow-crested flycatcher streams the longing of the oh oh How is it possible? It's a different bird, but it knows the melody, said the art collector. The young artist who had sent the package was at once summoned to the art foundation. She explained that she had been born in the South Seas herself, but on a different island where the yellow-crested flycatcher lived. The flycatcher did not sound very much like the uh-oh. Its song was happier and not nearly as wistful as the mating call from the online island, but the flycatcher was a skilled imitator and a quick learner too. Perhaps she thought if she played the mating call to a hatchling, it could learn to imitate the uh-oh's call. So the artist had acquired a baby flycatcher. She placed a tablet in the birdcage, and every morning and every night and every afternoon as well, she kept a window open to the online island. She covered the birdcage with a blanket so the flycatcher could see nothing but the ancient trees and hear nothing but the mating call by the caldera lake. The flycatcher grew big and strong by the warm glow of the tablet screen. And one morning, the artist heard it singing a mating call just like the one online. It's beautiful, whispered the art collector. And the critic and the museum director agreed, a real living bird that sang an extinct love song. What a poetic gesture. Otherworldly, mellifluous, phonic, they said. And the young artist who had taught the flycatcher to sing was immediately awarded a fellowship as resident artist of the Art Foundation. You have resurrected the mating call, said the museum director to the art collector. Now, the island in the South Seas will once again sound like it did in the old unspoiled days. Soon, the flycatcher was released on the island. And all day, the yellow bird sat alone in the ancient trees and sang his lonely song. His mating call sounded wistful and melancholy, but not exactly like the song online. Well, that's the beauty of natural things, said the critic. They all have their quirks and peculiarities and what we call charms on the real island. Tourists heard about the songbird with the wistful mating call. They hiked out to the caldera lake to listen. Travel agencies arranged birding tours. Soon, the flycatcher's song brought as much joy to people as the mating call online. And on top of that, the real bird was so much more fun to photograph. It flew about, and it caught flies and puffed up its yellow breast. The critic wrote a monograph about the living bird. It was so complicated and so full of references to the most difficult theories that all the other critics published rave reviews. <laughs> because otherwise they might have seemed crude and been mocked online. The critic assured the art collector that the flycatcher was even better than the uh-oh, not just in terms of its mating call, but also because it was so much more authentic with its genuine features and real living eyes. We always know exactly what comes out of the internet bird, said the critic. Everything is decided by an algorithm. It sounds like this and never any other way. But with the real living bird, you cannot calculate its song. It has character. And if, if you were to slit it open, there would be no strings of code determining how it sings because it is guided by a bigger force, by what we call life. 
Oh yes, the flycatcher was certainly a marvel. The art collector commissioned a documentary about the real living bird by the Caldera Lake. The poor people should also have a chance to hear the genuine thing, said the art collector. And when people streamed the documentary, they were so pleased that they left hundreds of comments. They wrote, aww, <laughs> and posted hearts and tiny smiling faces. But the young gamer who had so often heard the online mating call said, it looks cute and it does sound totally like it, but something is off. I wonder what it is. A whole year went by. All across the island, tour guides and hotel staff told the story of the extraordinary bird that had brought an extinct love song back to life. There were souvenirs and postcards featuring the flycatcher. And every week, more and more tourists came to the island from far away to hear the famous mating call. A rapper composed lyrics about the lonely uh-oh who would never find his love. The whole island hummed the song. If two heartbroken lovers met, all one of them had to say was, uh-oh. <laughs> and they would sigh and feel each other's longing. Travel bloggers took photos and retold the story of the lonesome bird. And one of these stories reached an ornithologist many thousands of miles away who was lying on his couch scrolling his phone. What kind of mess is this? He mumbled and jumped up from the couch to pull down volumes from his library. He was an endowed professor and so wise that he never opened his mouth without getting paid for it. But this story made him so upset that he went straight to work without even a contract or an expense account. And after much leafing through zoological nomenclatures and much referencing of taxonomies, he wrote a letter to the art collector to explain that no uh-oh had ever lived on the green island in the blue south seas. I have visited this island many times. I have studied its fauna. I know all of its birds, the professor wrote. And I can guarantee you that the uh-oh and its mating call are fake. But I heard about it myself said the art collector when he called the ornithologist. I heard it from the island's oldest woman. And she was a proper native, too. So what do you mean the mating call is fake? Said the professor. And hung up because his expertise no longer came for free. The call had disturbed the art collector. How could the endowed professor accuse him of being fake? He who cared so much about the truth and who had spent a fortune to share genuine natural beauty with the poor. Once again, he called the animator who suffered from toothaches and had traveled south to get a dental bridge for he did not have health insurance and could not afford the dentist in his homeland. The art collector left an angry message asking where the animator had gotten the uh-oh from. He sent text messages and a cease and desist order, but the animator received none of it, for he did not have phone coverage abroad. <laughs> the art collector summoned the endowed professor. The scholar got his contract and expense account and got to work. He called the top ornithologists, Anthropologists and ethnographers also got involved, even a professor in cognitive psychology. All of them interviewed the poor old woman in the jungle. The anthropologist concluded that the poor old woman spoke in allegories. The psychology professor diagnosed her with advanced dementia. In any case, the experts agreed that the old woman was not talking about a real living bird, but about an ancient myth the one about the bird who sings his final mating call before this world ends and a new world arises. Find that animator, cried the art collector, and I mean right now because I am pissed off. Of course, said the PA who continued calling the dental offices of the southern neighbor. Finally, she found the animator. And after much pleading and many threats of litigation, he admitted that the mating call was not a natural song. Late one night on the internet, the animator had seen a video about the mythical uh-oh. He'd thought the legend so beautiful that he had asked his niece, who was a DJ on the weekends, <laughs> if she would sample him a mating call. <laughs> 
Oh, God, said the art collector when he heard the story. I have spread a false song, an artificial mating call that never belonged in nature. The art collector called the governor of the island and explained that the mating call was a fabrication. If you help me catch the flycatcher, said the art collector, I promise I will delete the online island and the fake mating call and never again will I interview in your community. Don't be silly, said the governor. Your island has done us a lot of good. You keep your online island and we will keep the mating call. But please promise me one thing, please. Don't tell anyone it was made by a teenage girl. <laughs> Politicians, mumbled the art collector. They have no sense of the true and the genuine. They only care about the next election. And then he called the hotelier who had hosted him during his stay. Please, said the art collector, please help me stop this false mating call. The hotelier turned on his phone's video and showed the art collector his hotel. The swimming pool was packed. Every chair in his restaurant was taken up by hungry diners. And why were they so hungry? Because they had spent the whole day hiking, searching for the mating call. Look at them, said the hotelier. For them, the mating call is real enough. Businessmen, muttered the art collector. They have no sense of the authentic and the real. The only thing they care about is money. And then he called for his PA to summon the endowed professor. Professor, please, do something before the whole island gets infected with this artificial song. <laughs> Said the professor. <laughs> and so the art collector had to go and get his checkbook. The endowed professor got straight to work. And after many phone calls and much referencing of legal codes, he concluded that it was illegal to hunt wild birds on the island. But no need to fear, he said, within a decade, I promise you all chirping on the island will be real and natural again. All they had to do was wait, and the mating call would die out on its own. After all, there was only a single yellow-crested flycatcher, and he could not mate alone. Ten years? And all that time, the artificial song would stain and soil the pristine jungles of the Virgin Island. What a horrible shame. You poor, unspoiled island, said the art collector, and bowed his head in embarrassment. Look at you, drowning in tourists, an inauthentic song. And all of it is my fault. Ten years passed. And the whole art world was worried because everyone was fond of the generous art collector. Now rumors said he had fallen ill. His formidable art collection had been donated to museums. The board of his company had already appointed a new CEO. Only doctors and psychiatrists were allowed to visit his sickbed. And even the strongest drugs could no longer lighten his mood. All day long, the art collector lay in his bed, pale and rigid, while the doctors discussed his treatment. The chief psychiatrist advised him to take a convalescent holiday by the sea, far from the city's noise and screens. Well, where have you been the calmest and happiest, she asked. But the art collector was so weak and dazed that he could not reply. I know, said the PA. I know where he was happiest. The whole long way to the South Seas, the art collector dozed. He was so drowsy from the drugs that he did not even notice when they laid him in a bed in a magnificent treehouse high in the jungle canopy. In the treetop hotel, the hotelier had left the windows open all round so the art collector could sleep in the freshest air. The Wi-Fi had been switched off. The power cut, and that's why it was so quiet, with only the sounds of the jungle could be heard. So quiet that the PA had to put her hand in front of the art collector's lips to check if he was breathing. But the art collector was still alive. Dazed and confused, he woke up late at night in the dim treetop bedroom high above the jungle. Next to the bed, a panoramic window was open, and below him the palm trees swayed in the night. Where 
whispered the art collector. Why is it so dark? Just then, the clouds broke and the moon shone on the island. The art collector stumbled out of bed and when he saw the beach and the jungle and the caldera lake, he could hardly breathe. From the dark trees, he heard a synthetic sound. Uh-oh, called a voice. Uh-oh, called another voice. And then another. Uh-oh. From all around the forest, he heard the digital call, and sweat poured down his neck. Turn it off, said the art collector. Turn off that fakeness. But through the window, the beach and the forest and the crater lake were still bathed in the pale moonlight. There was no button to switch it off, and the panorama window had no screen. Turn it off. Turn it off, screamed the art collector, and he threw a fist into the window and his arm went through the frame. He lost his balance. He tripped through the open window and fell screaming through the canopy. The PA heard his shriek. The hotelier heard bones and branches snap and crack. An accident, cried the PA. A suicide, said the hotelier. But the poor art collector was not dead. He lay on the forest floor with fractured arms and legs, and stared up into the entangled vines. On a little heap of twigs sat two birds rubbing beaks. One was yellow-crested, the other was ashen, its little chest throbbing in an electronic rhythm. The hotelier and the PA came running to find the art collector's body. There he lay among the old trees, and as they approached, he raised a shaking hand and pointed at the nest. Uh-oh, called the yellow bird. Uh-oh, answered the ashen one and sat down on her eggs. <laughs> B.D. Wong performed The Mating Call by Mikkel Rosengard. I'm Meg Wallitzer. We caught up with B.D. Wong backstage after his performance. It was a wonderful story about, how would I say this, the overlap between the virtual world that we live in and the real world, and how that overlap is kind of blurry, actually. We're playing a lot of video games in my house, and these wonderful virtual worlds that seem to go on forever, they're not real, but they have such detail and vivid storytelling in them that it really made this story feel plausible to me. This story really grabs the writer in me. It's all about how many permutations of an idea change its identity and the nature of truth. In 2007, Joshua Bell, perhaps the most renowned violinist in the world, tried out an idea in the DC Metro. He stood there actually busking and not that many people stopped to listen. I guess just like in Mikkel Rosengard's story, there were too many layers of change between what they thought they knew and what was right in front of them and so the true nature of the song remained unheard. I hope we've demonstrated that birds are a good vehicle for the literary imagination, because they are both real and something we romanticize. They can animate a fable, become a menacing and disorienting mode of change, and embody an idea and a sound so potent that millions yearn for it. As part of the live performance, Tan provided a series of striking illustrations of birds that were projected in the theater, you can enjoy them at SelectedShorts.org on the webpage for this week's show. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts.
Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.